This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Malik Alim, producer, engineer, mix master, and irreplaceable teacher. That was the generous guitar gorilla Tom Morello getting us started, singing a song of freedom. Tom shows up wherever and whenever people gather together in the ongoing and deeply human quest for peace and justice for freedom. We gather here for our seminar on freedom, and regular listeners know that that title, Under the Tree, is a metaphor meant to signal that when the topic is liberation, the classroom can be a park or a house of worship, a storefront or the street, a distribution or exchange site for mutual aid or a factory floor, a people's assembly, a demonstration. Anywhere we come together and choose to unlock our collective wisdom and pose the fundamental questions once more. Who are we? How did we get here? Where do we want to go? And what is to be done? Those questions transform our gathering together into a classroom without walls, the whole wide city or a small village as our school. This intentional community, an underground university, a fugitive space, an insurgent academy. What binds us together is a commitment to look at the world as if it could be otherwise, and then to get busy in a project of repair. We open each episode with a poem, our common practice, and our ritual announcement the seminar is in session. It's a time of reflection, a moment of zen. Today's poem is from the revolutionary artist Bertolt Brecht, and the poem is A Worker Reads History. Who built the seven gates of Thebes? The books are filled with the names of kings. Was it the kings who hauled the craggy blocks of stone? And Babylon, so many times destroyed. Who built the city up each time? In which of Lima's houses, that city glittering with gold, lived those who built it? In the evening when the Chinese wall was finished, where did the masons go? Imperial Rome is full of arcs of triumph. Who reared them up? Over whom did the Caesars triumph? Byzantium lives in song. Were all her dwellings palaces? And even in Atlantis of the legend, the night the seas rushed in, the drowning men still bellowed for their slaves. Young Alexander conquered India. He alone? Caesar beat the Gauls. Was there not even a cook in the army? Philip of Spain wept that his fleet was sunk and destroyed. Were there no other tears? Frederick the Great triumphed in the Seven Years' War. Who triumphed with him? Each page of victory, at whose expense the victory ball. Every ten years a great man, who paid the piper. So many particulars, so many questions. Bertolt Brecht, A Worker Reads History. Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, a moment to enable new awarenesses to spark up unannounced. Today's free write flows directly from Brecht's reflection on the marginalized and the disappeared workers. Take any object within your sight. I'll choose this head of lettuce that I'm getting ready for dinner. I'll describe the lettuce in detail. You describe your object. Then write down every invisible hand that worked together to get that lettuce to your table. Someone tilled the soil, sowed the seeds, harvested the lettuce. A human being laid the rails or the concrete that carried the truck or the train. Before that, someone mined the ore, mixed the cement, and on and on. So pause the podcast if you like, and write wildly without pausing for edits or rewrites in response to this prompt. Whose hands and heads, backs and bodies, brought that object to your table? Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews, and follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. It's time now for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, where we talk to folks who help us think more deeply about this political moment, about freedom and justice, and about what is to be done. We look at the circumstances of our lives, release our most radical imaginations, and ask not just what's going on, but also how our lives might be otherwise. I'm delighted to be joined by Bill Fletcher Jr., a labor organizer, writer, 
activist, and trade unionist. Bill has fought for decades for broad progressive social change, racial equality, and economic justice, and he's one of the smartest writers and commentators on the political scene today, both here in the U.S. and internationally. Bill was a convener of the Black Radical Congress, former director of Trans Africa, and the author of several books, including They're Bankrupting Us and 20 Other Myths About Unions. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Bill, thanks very much. It's a pleasure. Tell me how things are going for you. We're all on lockdown. I got to start by just saying, are, are you well? Are you guys okay? How's your family? Uh, doing well. Family's well. Uh, you know, the way I look at it is that ever since the emergence of Trump, none of us has been well. That's true. Right. And um, I, I remember. Uh, about six months into his administration, I went to the doctor about some gastrointestinal issues. And I said to the doctor, you know, I, I really wonder how much of this has to do with Trump. And I was sort of half joking, but he, he, didn't, he didn't smile. He said, I can't tell you how many of my patients have said exactly the same thing. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, people haven't slept well, uh, continuous anxiety. Uh, so that's a long answer to how I'm doing. But, you yeah. know, it, it could be a lot worse. You know, my mentors in this uh, podcast world are two young people. Uh, Daniel and Damon say all the time, um, how, how, how's the world treating you and how are you treating the world? And I think that's a great kind of dialectic to ask, how's the world treating you? Where are you finding joy? But also, um, you know, how are you treating the world? What are you doing? And one of the things that I've admired for you as long as I've known you, which is a long, long time, is that you find a way of intervening in the world, even in the worst of times, even when circumstances are to our advantage. Um, and I think that's something that is a lesson for activists and organizers. You are, for me, a quintessential organizer. So. The world's not treating you that well, but I know you're fighting back because you always have. Do you Yeah, you have to. Do you, I don't know if you remember, but one of the times, I mean, I've known, I've read your stuff and I've known you for a long time, but one of the places that you and I met, um, and you may not remember this, but it was at the birth, the uh, farm of John Brown up in the Adirondacks, and it was, and it was John Brown Day, and you were the guest speaker, as you're a guest speaker here, and I remember going from the courthouse in that little upstate town, walking a mile or two over to the to the farm where John Brown and his family are buried and being greeted by busloads of kids from the Bronx, African-American kids singing, dancing, all of us celebrating John Brown's birthday. You remember that? Mm -hmm. I do. And, and what did and what I remember most clearly is you situated John Brown in the history of black liberation in a way that was very unique and very touching. Do you, I don't know if you remember any of that, but maybe you'd say a word about John Brown. He's the, as I've often said to my friends, he's the one white person in American history who I trust and the rest of them I'm not so sure about. Well, you know, it's interesting because I just finished watching that Ethan Hawke uh, series about John Brown. And, um, and, and I, I think it's really important for people to appreciate that John Brown is probably the most controversial white American figure in history. Right. Uh, that, that, that mainstream history simply can't figure out what to make of John Brown. Right. You know, and, and, that, and that's very fundamental. Um, and that, you know, what do you, what do you make of a white man who put his life on the line, the life of his family, uh, in open opposition to slavery, not simply verbal, but militarily. I, I mean, this is, it, it's really amazing. And, and uh, I remember, Bill, when I was a kid, watching this old movie called Santa Fe Trail mm, I remember from 1940 with... Um, uh, Oh my God! Um, I can't remember all the actors now. But what was interesting was it was it was basically situated in the lead up to Harper's Ferry, and it 
presented uh, Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn was in it. And it basically presented uh, Brown as a nut. Exactly. As, as a complete nut, uh, as a complete fanatic. And that's the thing about John Brown. But for, for African-Americans, you know, he's not a nut. He, I mean, this is just a remarkable figure. Yeah. He did what had to be done. And he, and he, was, he, he wasn't compromising about it. He was absolutely all in. You know, I, when we were underground, Bernadine and I made a, a, a voyage to Harper's Ferry to, to see one of our heroes. And the portrayal of John Brown at Harper's Ferry 40 years ago was an absolute insane person with these wild eyes and his hair blowing in the wind with a torch, you know. And that was John Brown, uh, Nat, Turner, Nat Turner as well. They were both insane because why would anybody do what they did? But actually... When you look back on it from uh, from 150 or 200 years, you can say, "Yeah, that was that was a sensible reaction to um, an absolutely unspeakably vicious and cruel society." You know, he unfortunately wasn't a good tactician. <laughs> that's a that's an understatement, right? And uh, which I think uh, I think the Ethan Hawke uh, version in that last episode dramatized the terrible mistake he made. And, um, and, and I'm, I always, uh, I think about this wonderful book, Fire on a Mountain. Love that book. Yeah. And, and just wondering what might've happened had he done what was suggested in that book, which was a basically grab the weapons and head for the hills, you know? Yeah. But he, he was practicing I was joking with Carl Davidson about this. He was actually practicing a form of uh, the Foucault theory. That's in right. 1859. <laughs> Basically assuming that by seizing the armory that the masses would rally. And uh, he didn't get that one right. But, so maybe he was a Guevarist or, or maybe that's why the weathermen loved him so much because we, we, we made the same errors in many ways. <laughs> But 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 at the same time, in his defeat was also his victory because in his defeat, he was able to have I think it was only seven or eight days where he was in jail. He was being held to be executed, and he spoke to the world in an eloquence that was unmatched um, from any white person. And well, that's a fun way to begin. But I want to go a couple other directions. I. Um, I noted at the beginning that you were a longtime labor organizer and a longtime racial justice activist. And I wanted to talk to you a bit about the labor movement and also about really, I guess I'd like to start with this political moment. We are right after the election of, uh, of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to, to the leadership of the nation in Washington, D.C. We witnessed the uh, electoral defeat of Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Um, how do you how do you assess this this political moment? Where are we? And and a small question: What is to be done? Ah, to coin a phrase, to um, well, let's just start with the election because there's well, there's sort of the larger moment, mm -hmm. and so if you talk about the larger moment, the larger moment globally is uh, a mo a moment of two tectonic plates that are crashing together, uh, environmental catastrophe and economic crisis. And this underlies the tension that the world is facing. Um, 2020 has had its specific variation on this, which included the pandemic, uh, economic collapse, um, the uh, police killings with the response being the, the protests and uprisings, um, and massive red baiting. And it's interesting, Bill, uh, it was 111, 101 years ago that we saw something very similar in 1919. Right. Actually, the same type of phenomenon. It just wasn't an election year. Um, 
the uh, so so all of that is the background within which we're operating. Then the election takes place, and this is an election that I think you can characterize by three R's: uh, uh, race, revanchism, and the rejection of reality. And and that that the the race was a combination of the racial demagoguery of Trump, uh, not just this year, but for four years. It was uh, characterized by the explosion that resulted from the, uh, the police murders and then ultimately the killing of George Floyd and massive protests that, that unfolded that had a very contradictory effect on this country. On the one hand, uh, certainly when it came to the election, large numbers of African-Americans were, and youth were inspired to vote. Um, there were, uh, the, the scale of the protests were historic. By the same token, the protests were used by Trump in much the way that Nixon did in 1968. Uh, Trump ended up channeling Nixon uh, and it, on the whole issue of law and order and stability. And, it, and it, it reminds us that again and again, that there's large sections of the population that may intellectually say that they are on the side of justice. But when people protest, they default to panic. They default to a demand for security. Mm -hmm. uh, and we saw that in 68, we saw it again this year, uh, and large numbers of Trump, uh, of people turned out to vote for Trump as a result. We, we, this is a, a year of revanchism, a term not used very much in the United States, but it's a term I've been using re uh, repeatedly, uh, usually associated with Germany after World War I and World War II. And for your listeners that aren't familiar with it, it's a term referring to a politics of revenge, but a very specific kind where a movement is asserting that something was taken from them mm -hmm. that they want back. And for the right-wing populist movement that has developed, uh, re-emerged in the United States, there's several things that they want back. Uh, they, they want a restoration of the old racial relations and a white republic. They want the restoration of the gender relations of the 1950s. In fact, when Trump spoke prior to the election and he was appealing to white women, the white women he was appealing to were Donna Reed and June Cleaver. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it was, he was completely out of touch with women of today. Um, and he was speaking to a very particular thing. And, it, and his, his idea was, and the idea of his movement is a restoration to those gender roles. Mm. So it wasn't just a, a movement of misogyny, of which it is, but it's a movement for the restoration of June Cleaver. Um, and uh, it's also a revanchist movement uh, in terms of the U.S. role internationally. You know, one of the things, Bill, that people don't get when they, uh, many people fell prey to in looking at Trump as an isolationist, is that they don't understand what isolationism means in the U.S. context. In fact, in 2016, there was a left-wing uh, commentator, I use the term very loosely, who wrote and asserted that Trump uh, might even be described as a closet peace candidate. Uh, as opposed to Hillary Clinton, because he was an isolationist. And, and I, I said at the time, and I've continued to say, this person completely misunderstands isolationism. Isolationism in the U.S. context is not autarky. It's not cutting the U.S. off from the rest of the world. It is basically saying the U.S. does not want to be encumbered by treaties and other international obligations. It basically wants to be free to do whatever it wants to do, whenever it wants to do it. And, and so that's Trump's isolationism. 
And that's what appeals to and has historically appealed to a very important segment of the right wing. And then finally, Bill, the rejection of reality. You, you can't look at this election without saying that millions of people voted to reject reality, to reject uh, the COVID pandemic, and to, uh, to reject the environmental catastrophe we're living through. Millions. And, and that's why I am not interested in hearing apologies for these people. Uh, I'm not interested in hearing excuses about how bad life has been for them. Masses uh, of people decided to join the Flat Earth Society, and they did so by voting for Trump. Yeah, I have found the whole term, the white working class, which has been thrown around now for, for years, to be so um, not only, not only uh, false, but, but racist. I mean, well, you know, the white working class has had it hard. Oh, and meanwhile, the black working class has been just great. What does it even mean in the context of, of labor in the United States and working people in the United States? But why is it, why is it that working people, lots and lots of working people, are drawn to the kind of fascist alternative um, to the the revenge politics and so on. Why is that? Where where do you see that coming from? So I think we have to be we have to we have to unpack that a little bit. After the 2016 election and during the last four years, there's been a narrative that um, that Trump inspired the white worker. In fact, it was the white worker that brought him into office. And as it turned out, when people started digging, they found out that that was not the case. And that, in fact, uh, in 2016, um, the people that identified the economy as their chief concern overwhelmingly voted for Clinton. Mm -hmm. The people that voted, that indicated that immigration and terrorism were their main issues tended to vote for Trump. When you look at the Tea Party, the Tea Party and Trump have much of the same base in common. They are white, overwhelmingly, and they are also rooted more in the middle strata and upper levels. So what Trump did is that economically, he won the majority of every sector of whites. But he it's not that he did especially well with poorer and more working class whites. He did very well among whites in this, in this election, whites making more than $100,000. So, so when you hear this, then it raises some very interesting questions, right? Uh, uh, that are in line with what you're, ra- what you're raising in your, in, in your point to me. Um, so I wanted to start there. The second thing is, that the people that were attracted to Trump and attracted to the Tea Party have tended, much like most right-wing movements internationally, to be people that are not necessarily suffering, but fear that they will suffer. They feel that they fear that they're being squeezed between the rich and the poor, and they're looking for an answer, and they tend towards an authoritarian answer, uh, a populist. Uh, nationalist answer. Uh, that's who is his base or has been his base. Uh, now, while it is true that uh, large numbers of union members, apparently, allegedly in this, in this election, like in the last one, 40% voted for Trump. Mm. What's important to keep in mind is that in general, in most elections, 25 to 30% of union members vote Republican. So we're saying that Trump did about 10% better, uh, which is significant, but it's, you know, it, it helps put certain things in perspective. Um, what did Trump do? Trump fundamentally said to white people, the American dream is no longer working for you. He said to people in a way that was different from prior Republican presidents, uh, but not necessarily from the Republican establishment as a whole, that the the game is rigged, that um, 
the economic policies that have been followed have not been to your benefit, mm-hmm. that you're the victim of Jews, you're the victim of uh, uh, migrants from the global south, the victim of uh, black people in a form of affirmative action, that uh, meritocracy no longer applies. And for a lot of people who are looking for answers, those are convincing, Mm -hmm. particularly if you don't fundamentally want to examine the system under under which we operate. Uh, It's much easier to blame an ethnographic group than it is to say, you know, the system is really crushing working people. Um, So I think all of those things conspired to present that base. And we've seen that in other countries. So it's not unique to the United States. What is not so much unique, but something identifiable in the US is the impact of settler colonialism and the whole notion of the US as a white republic, mm-hmm. which is so central to the message of Trump and, and always has been. And you, you looked back at 1919 and also 1968. Those are both instances where, interestingly, Nixon also ran for president as a peace candidate. You remember Humphrey, Humphrey was so chained to Lyndon Johnson and so chained to the war in Vietnam that Nixon could actually position himself to get both the warmongers and elements of, who wanted to think we should get out of Vietnam to go in his direction. But in both 68 and 1919, the natural base for white supremacy that is always there in America was mobilized and, and structured in a certain way that it had an impact that when it's disparate and, and unorganized, it doesn't have. But this, these last four years, I've never seen that base so mobilized and so coherent and so aware of one another in a certain way. And, and we're living through the results of a trajectory. Well, on one level, you could say the trajectory starts in 1607, but, but more recently, 1964, and Goldwater's defeat, but his message, along with George Wallace, that there's a trajectory, the, the, the Southern strategy of Nixon, the white people strategy, um, and looking at the way that the Republican establishment played the race card mm. continuously uh, and, and was uh, playing with the creation, much like Dr. Frankenstein, of their own monster, right. which as in the Frankenstein, the doctor thought that he could control. The Republican establishment thought that they could control this right-wing populist movement that they were encouraging, uh, that they were supporting. Uh, And at a certain point, they could no longer control it, which is one of the reasons that they were so shocked in 2016 by how decisively Trump was defeating one Republican establishment politician after another. This was not something that they counted on. They were assuming that much like the Tea Party movement, they could utilize it, but then reined it in. But the monster ran away. What is the role of the labor movement today in terms of the context you've just set up? Well, there's what the role should be. Yeah, still in crisis. I mean, labor... Organized labor is still in crisis. That's right. It, it very much is. Well, organized labor has not only been in crisis, but it's uh, it, part of the crisis is strategic paralysis. Mm. And that you can see over the years, and it's been manifested in different things, including the split in AFL-CIO in 2005. Uh, you, can, you could look at the aftermath of uh, Trump's election in 2016 and the silence within AFL-CIO in the aftermath, um, they're all symptoms of this crisis. And 
And organized labor finds itself in this problem in part because it has, by and large, tried to avoid dealing directly with issues of race and gender, dealing directly with the danger of a right-wing populist movement. So the, the theory and practice, as articulated by the founder of the American Federation of Labor, Samuel Gompers, was that um, unions and the labor movement should engage in fights around wages, hours, and working conditions. It was called pure and simple unionism. And even though there were elements of the union movement, including industrial workers of the world and others that fought that, that has been the dominant framework. That's what we're, we've been up against. So the movement has been largely unprepared to take on the fight against right-wing populism. Uh, it, it, you know, it's like when your cannon are rusty and have been filled with water, you can't all of a sudden say, let's, you know, put the gunpowder in and the, and the, and the shell and fire it without the damn thing blowing up on you. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of what has happened in our movement. The cannon are rusty. Um, now, what the, the implications of this are several fold. One is that we absolutely need to retire most of the current leadership of organized labor. Mm. But even in that, the deeper problem is to embrace a different framework of trade unionism. And part of that framework is recognizing that in the face of right-wing populism, in the face of growing authoritarianism, uh, including neoliberal authoritarianism, that the movement can't sit back and say, this is not a labor issue. This is not something for us to engage in. Uh, we'll leave that to the political parties. This is a moment when we have got to be actively engaged and create a, a practice of social justice unionism. Explain that, expand on that, because I think that's a, a hugely important concept. And being a Chicagoan, um, I've been privy to watching the Chicago Teachers Union really in a very practical way manifest just, just that notion. Absolutely. They're a quintessential example. Social justice unionism is basically the notion that the role of the union is to represent workers, not just to represent bargaining units. Um, and, and, the, and the representing the role of workers does not stop at the end of the workday. And it does not stop when the workers leave the workplace, but it's dealing with what are the issues that workers are facing, both at the workplace and in the community? And it is a unionism that sees itself as engaged in a fight for power uh, and, and not having to sit back on its heels waiting for capital to make the first moves, but uh, essentially demands of us that we think, how do we increase the power of working people? So you're right, the, um, the Chicago Teachers Union is an excellent example. And uh, what they did and have done repeatedly is to make the issues that they raise, the issues of the community and vice versa. Um, and so there are a few examples historically of that. Uh, another example that I like to hold up is that of the Packing House Workers Union, which no longer exists merged into the United Food and Commercial Workers. But one of the things that I found fascinating about them, Bill, was that this was a union that actively fought racist discrimination. Throughout, they right. fought the hiring policies of the employers. They didn't just wait till people were brought in. They fought discrimination in the workplace. They built relations with communities, in fact, and including helping to build community-based organizations is really a remarkable form of unionism. So there's a historical basis for what I'm talking about. This is not my just articulating some general vision. Right. Unfortunately, though, that's not the character of most of the union movement. 
Right, but but uh, going back to the teachers' union, it also is interesting to me, and tell me where I've got this wrong, that the teachers' union, largely women-led um, in Chicago and nationally, uh, the nurses' unions and and the uh, domestic workers' associations, those are both uh, those are all examples of women-led unions that tend to put forward in the forefront a common good model, a justice model, of why they're organizing. Is is that is that correct? I mean, do you think that's absolutely correct? And um, but I would I would go farther and say that it's women who either are leftists or are influenced by the left. Right. Because there's other examples of women-led unions that follow different paths. Of course. And so and and so I think that it's it's the sort of fusion of the politics and the demographic the politics and history of oppression that come together that have helped to create a different trade union practice. And it's one that has been emulated and needs to continue to be emulated. One of the things that, to go into the weeds just a little bit, you've been at the bargaining table in many, many situations with different unions. Um, You've been an education director of several labor movements, labor unions. Um, One of the things that intrigued me was a notion that you came up with, and this reminded me so much of the Chicago Teachers Union, that when you were an educational director, um, you were involved with labor education, and I don't remember what union, but you came up with this idea of common sense economics. That is, instead of of the education uh, department simply talking about servicing the contract or getting the union stewards up to speed, you actually went to the grassroots and you built a program that explained um, economics, capitalism and economics. You know what, in America, when we say economics, we mean capitalism. That's right. That's right. (laughs) No, well, that was when I was at the AFL-CIO. That's right. Talk a little bit about that project. Well, it was, it was, um, what happened was I had been working for the Service Employees International Union and for a variety of reasons decided to leave. But the AFL-CIO in, uh, in 1996 adopted a resolution at their executive council that there needed to be an economic education program targeted at members. Now, this was very significant because the AFL-CIO had not done something like this in the past. What influenced them was, to a great extent, voting patterns among workers, among particularly union members. And this problem, this historic problem of what I said before, 25 to 30% of union members voting Republican. And people were trying to figure out, why is that? Right? What's going on? And so there was a decision that there needed to be a economic education program to, in the words of the former president of Communication Workers of America, create a framework so that workers can open the paper in the morning, look at what's happening, and make some sense out of it. Mm. That's part one. And part two is, after making sense of it, doing something about it. So I was hired as the education director. And I was commissioned with making that happen, taking that resolution and turning it into some sort of reality. And we went about doing that. Uh, it, was, it was an amazing experience. Now, the problem that happened, uh, which is heart-wrenching, is that we uh, developed in conjunction with different union activists, Uh, with the Center for Popular Economics, with uh, a variety of different um, education programs, we developed the curriculum. And actually, we developed the curriculum, we developed uh, a CD-ROM that was used, we developed a number of things. And then we started doing trainer-trainers, because our theory was we needed to have a lot of barefoot educators. Excellent. 
and to get people out there to talk about what was going on. We had an interesting fight, Bill, because there were some people that said only economists could do this. And we said, no, if, if that's the case, then this is, this is done. We're finished, right? And, and so we taught people how to do it. The problem was that there is such an anti-education culture within our movement mm. that the kind of resources that were needed throughout the entire movement were very limited. And in my own case at the AFL-CIO, because of a particular financial crisis, they basically plateaued us. Mm. So we were at a point of getting ready to fully operationalize this. We needed more resources and we couldn't get them. Um, a number of the affiliates that were supposed to take this and do it with their own members, they faltered. And so the project um, dried on the vine. Yeah. But I like the idea of barefoot educators. It, it harkens back to Paulo Freire or to the freedom schools in the South. It's, it's, it's ordinary people unlocking the wisdom and training folks to be able to unlock the wisdom of other folks. And that's really the model of uh, right. a democratic model. And that was our model. And, and, and in an interesting way, one of my favorite books of yours is um, They're Taking Our jo- No, it's... Uh, they're bankrupt. They're bankrupting us and 20 other myths about unions. And it's in a series with Beacon Press. That's right. I think Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz has one. Uh, there's one called they're, they're Taking Our Jobs and 20 Other Myths About Immigrants. That's right, by Chomsky. Uh, by yeah. Chomsky's Aviva, Aviva Chomsky. Right, right. Aviva Chomsky. And then I have one called uh, You Can't Fire the Bad Ones and 18 Other Myths About Teachers and Unions. Ah. So it's all part of the same right, uh, right. idea. But in some ways, your work with this educational project I look at that book you did on unions as a primer for anyone who wants to understand labor, both historically and the current crisis. I think it's a primer. Here's 20 myths. Here's the answer to 20 myths. And, and here's how you can, you can put this in your backpack and carry it out into your organizing work. I mean, I was just fascinated with reading it, and it helped me. It gave me some, uh, some artillery. Thank you. And I, I, I'm just curious how, how you... Did that come from the, the same spot or did you, what inspired that book? Oh, man. Well, so there's how that book happened and what inspired it. So I got a call one day from uh, uh, someone at, the, at Beacon Press who wanted me to write, write this book and said that there was a series that you just described. So, um, and she said, there's all this, this was in 2011, there's this renewed interest in unions, but what they've discovered is how much or how little people really know about you. Exactly. Right? So I said, okay. The, but, but what inspired it, once I agreed to do it, was that I was flying from San Jose to San Diego one day on my way back home, but I had to fly through San Diego. And I was sitting uh, reading a book about global trade unionism. Mm. And there was this young woman sitting in the window seat. I was on the aisle. And all of a sudden, I noticed that she was like looking over towards me. And I didn't know whether she was like looking at me or I didn't. So I looked over and she smiled very friendly. She was probably in her 30s. And she said, I'm always interested in what people are reading. What are you reading? Well, I was excited, so I started telling her about this book, this book about the global labor movement or global trade unions. And then she looked at me and she said, what is a trade union? Wow. Exactly. Wow. And at first I thought she was joking around, and then I realized that she was serious. So I went about explaining to her what a union was using different examples, and she nodded her head in the way that people do when you know they have not a clue as to what you're talking about. So um, when, I, when I wrote the book, every day I would sit down and I imagined myself being at Starbucks, mm. talking to this woman. Mm. And I was thinking about 
the kinds of questions that I would guess that she would be asking me and my replies. And so the, the entire book was in some ways the result of a fantasy, a, fan, a fantasy discussion between me and this woman. And, and, uh, and I had a lot of fun doing it. I, I think it's a great project, and I think the book is great. Name, name a few of those myths. So they're bankrupting us as myth number one. What else? That's right. Um, uh, unions are all mobbed up. Right. Uh, unions are all racist. Um, unions, we don't need, we, we needed unions once, we don't need them anymore. Right. Um, they're self-interested. That, that's right. Uh, yeah. Unions um, uh, use your money to, to engage in politics. Mm. Unions are only made up of men, you know, and only looking out for men. Um, and, you know, I worked at these, and, and what I did <clears throat> was I, I linked my answers to history. Mm. So I always tried to give you know, answers that were rooted in history, as opposed to just simply making assertions. Right. And, and that, made it, that made it interesting for me. Right. You know, I'd like to turn in one other direction before we come to a close, and that is, you wrote a novel. And yeah. as you know, I fell in love with that novel and I promoted it and... Uh, and okay. you ended up speaking uh, up in, uh, up in, not Massachusetts, but it yeah. was, yeah, no, it was it, Massachusetts. It was Dartmouth, Massachusetts. Yeah, Dartmouth, that's right. Yeah. U.S. Dartmouth. And, yeah. And, uh, and a couple of professors up there really loved your book and, and brought you up there. Um, what turned you to writing a novel and why that particular novel, which incidentally, it's called The Man Who Fell From the Sky, right? That's and right. And it's a... It, I'm putting that out there because I always have on this podcast kind of a growing list of books that we ought to all be reading. And I want to recommend that novel, but it's your first novel. Mm -hmm. And so you are not only an activist and an author, you're also an artist. What, what led you to write a novel and why that novel? Okay, so the, the first answer is that ever since I was a kid, I've dreamed up stories. I literally, I mean, literally, like as like a elementary school, I would dream up various stories, um, and writing is in my blood. Part of it, I like to say, is um, being the great grandson of William Stanley Braithwaite, uh, who was this major pre-Harlem Renaissance uh, writer, anthologist, poet. That it just it runs in my blood. Gotcha. But but back back to the question of telling stories. I want to just say you are also as an organizer. I think a lot of organizers are this way. You're a quintessential storyteller. You don't Thank you. Up, you don't get up and 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 give a lecture that's a a screed or a, or a you know dogmatic. You actually tell stories and draw people in. I do. That way. So Thank so you. you're a writer. You're a storyteller. And I try. What I found is that. You can make all kinds of points, and this is a problem on the left, that we don't create good narratives. We, saw, we sort of think you can throw facts at people. Mm. And, and what the right understands is that the critical thing to winning people over is to create a convincing story that helps people understand reality. Mm. And... We have to do this. Um, so, so I've, I've worked at stories. I uh, wanted for a long time to write a novel, but I put it off because I had a sort of dogmatic, left uh, rigidity. I'm familiar. Yes. I'm familiar. <laughs> and, and it was like I couldn't justify writing a novel because I thought people would think, this was frivolous. And as it turned out, Bill, many people did. Is that right? Oh, really? No, absolutely. Um, and, and, and so what happened was um, I was introduced years ago to an agent, uh, a book agent. Mm -hmm. And 
I decided after writing Solidarity Divided to write a novel. And uh, it was a different storyline, but it was a mystery. And I wrote it. I had a lot of fun writing it. Gave it to this agent who said she would read it. And a few weeks later, she got back to me and she trashed it. Mm. Trashed it. Didn't give me any useful feedback. And her final words were, when you go back to writing nonfiction, call me. <laughs> and, and had I not had fun writing that, I would have been crushed. Right. But as it was, I basically put any further fiction writing on hold until I came up with this story in my head that laid the foundation for the man who fell from the sky. And I'll explain to you listeners the story. But the, the bottom line was, on vacation, I spoke with my wife and daughter, and I told them about this. And my daughter said, Dad, you have a story there, and maybe even a couple of stories. So with that, I went about writing it. The story is... But don't, don't kill the ending. Don't give it away. Because it's a mystery. It's a, it's a very intriguing mystery. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. The story is uh, situated in 1970, uh, mainly in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and begins with the murder of a white construction contractor who is someone that people look to in the community as a, as a straight-up guy. Uh, and a Cape Verdean American journalist and his friend, who's an Italian-American police officer, begin looking into the story. And it basically takes them back to World War II. But it's, but it's a story about race, revenge, and justice. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I decided, because I've had this fascination with the Cape Verdean experience in the United States, to talk about race through the experiences of Cape Verdeans. And what I found, Bill, is that most people have no idea who Cape Verdeans are. Exactly. You know, I, it's like I mentioned them, and it's like they'll look at you, and they, they don't want to admit that they don't know. But you can tell in their eyes, they have no idea. Absolutely. But in New Bedford, Massachusetts, oh, yeah. they know. And, that, and my professor friend who got a hold of you, he's Cape Verdean himself. Right. Right. And, and, and for your listeners, Cape Verdeans were the first post-1492 African population to come voluntarily to the Americas. And they started coming in the 19th century. And their experience was complicated because they were under the they, Cape Verde, the Cape Verde archipelago is 500 miles off the coast of Senegal. It is an African country um, colonized by Portugal up until 1975. Mm -hmm. And so you have these people who are subjects of the Portuguese crown in the 19th century coming to the United States. They are of African descent. They speak Portuguese or Criollo. They're mainly Catholics, but they don't come as slaves. Astonishing. And it's just, right? And, but they become very, very important figures in Black America, which is one of the reasons, Bill, which is a side note, that I have such issues with groups like this organization, the American Descendants of Slaves, of Slavery, uh, ADOS, and others that say that reparations should only be for those who can prove that they are the descendants of people who were slaves. And I'm saying, but there's this entire Black America right. that has evolved from the very beginning. And like, so where do the Cape Verdeans fit in, right? So yeah. I decided to do that. I had a lot of fun doing the story. And the response was amazing. That's an amazing story. And as I say, it's a mystery and it's filled with uh, uh, corners that you didn't see coming. And I really recommend it. Thank you. Are you working on any novels now? I finished the manuscript for the sequel. All right. I can't wait. Send it, send it to me. I'll blurb it and promote it. I will. I appreciate okay. it. So here's the story. I'm, uh, I, I, my publisher for the first one um, 
has basically put things on hold because book sales have been really bad for him right, during right. this pandemic. Right. Which in some ways seems counterintuitive. And I've heard other stories of people that are buying and selling a lot of books, but others that are having trouble. So um, things are delayed, but I'm hoping that we can have this book out by the end of 2021. I'm hoping that too. Tell me what you're reading. What are you reading that's intriguing you right now? Oh, well, I've, I mix what I read. Me too. So I just finished the sixth in the Elizabeth Salander stories. You know, the Man Who Fell From The Sky. Yeah, uh, yeah. Stories. The sixth one, which I very much enjoyed. Um, I'm currently reading, and it's very difficult, it's Samir Amin's last book mm. about imperialism and law of value. Um, and I have just, I met Samir Amin back in 2009. Um, and he's a great writer. Economics is very hard, uh, unless you're trained in it. This is, yeah. this is slow reading, but very interesting. Um, well, I've got a book for you and maybe, maybe your wife would love it as well. It's by Sadia Hartman uh -huh. at Columbia University. And the book is, um, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. And it's a book in which she she takes she she starts off by saying, the archive is always written by the powerful. The archive, the archival material is the people who, you know, were in the foreground of a given society. She goes back to the early 20th century. She looks at police records, social work accounts, um, you know, um, orphanages. And she tells the story of young black women coming from the South, trying to make a life for themselves, always defined by the powerful as prostitutes and outsiders and, and grifters, but in reality, full human beings trying to find their own freedom. Fascinating book. It's, it's uh, uh, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. Listen, let me ask you lastly, and I, I, I wish I could talk to you for hours, but I think we're going to have to agree We'll meet up at Busboys and Poets with uh, with our spouses uh, when this thing passes. But um, let me ask you how people can find your work, how they can follow you, how they can get in touch with you, uh, should that be possible, and so on. So my uh, my personal website, which I don't update as much as I should, is BillFletcherJr.com. Right. All one word. Um, I'm the executive editor of, of a project called GlobalAfricanWorker.com. Uh, which is a web magazine that was started um, on a volunteer basis uh, back in August 2019. And we have some great stuff there. Um, and we're trying to expand that and eventually include a podcasting uh, component to it. Right. right. Uh, so those are the two best ways to reach me. And I do respond, as you know, I respond very quickly. To people. You sure do. And, and I read you on Portside sometimes, in these times, other times. Um, but you're a prolific writer and a and a very generous activist, and I I really am so so grateful that you joined me for this this short amount of time. But let's let's stay in touch. Absolutely, thank you very much. We're going to forego our traditional homework segment and end instead with a short pop quiz. I bet you didn't see that coming. But just to shake things up a bit, here's a pop quiz. I have five straightforward questions, each based on a recent newspaper story, and each requiring a simple yes or no answer. Number one, if you had the opportunity to make $500,000 from the Sugar Research Foundation, funded by Coca-Cola, simply by publishing a review of research in the New England Journal of Medicine that concluded falsely that sugar was not linked to heart disease, would you do it? Number two, as an executive at Milan, which owns EpiPen, the life-saving injection device for people with severe allergies, would you authorize a 500% increase in price over 10 years of a two-pen set, making it out of reach for uninsured people? Number three, would you be willing to make a sizable sum of money by disabling the vehicle emissions control technology in diesel pickup trucks, allowing excess emissions 
equivalent to 9 million extra trucks on the road. Number four, if as a doctor you could make a lot of money by telling women falsely that they had thyroid cancer and then removing their thyroids, would you tell up to 80% of your patients who in fact did not need the surgery that they did need it? Number five, if offered a cash incentive, would you join over 5,000 fellow bank employees in signing up myriad customers for bank accounts that they didn't authorize, didn't know they had, didn't need, and did not understand, and ended up costing them exorbitant fees? That's the pop quiz. If you answered no to all five questions, I'm sorry to tell you, you cannot be a good capitalist. If you answered yes to three or more, enroll in the nearest business school and join the ranks of the well-mannered barbarians with their MBAs clutched in their hands. Thanks to friends and comrades from the brilliant podcast Ergo, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger, producers and mentors, and to Malika Lean, valued and irreplaceable comrade in arms. Our music is by Tom, the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. Thanks for being here. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.